Sassy's podcast. My name is Sheila and I'm part of South Asia Solidarity Initiative, a political collective based in New York City. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram or visit our website to learn more about our work or read our points of unity. You can also find our podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. With me are some of my Sassy comrades. If you want to go ahead and introduce yourselves. Hi everyone, this is Azad. I use they them pronouns. Hi, this is Maryam. I go by she and her, my pronouns. Hey, this is Nangeli, also she, her pronouns. Thanks, y'all. So this is episode number four. Um, this is an episode that we have been wanting to record for a really long time, but um, last month was a trip. We were involved in several direct actions, including the counter-protest on August 5th, um, the Times Square Ramander event. Um, you can hear more about that in episode number three. August was also Indian Independence Day on August 15th. And amidst all of this, what sort of got lost and was left out of the mainstream conversation was Kashmir. August 5th marked one year since India illegally annexed Kashmir by abrogating Article 370, which revoked Kashmir's special status and the very limited autonomy it had. Additionally, the Indian state further militarized the region, adding about 35,000 additional troops to what was already the most militarized region in the world. Um, and it imposed a brutal communications blockade that continues to this day. And so this past year, Kashmir has actually been in the limelight, covered by international media, perhaps more than it has um, in, in recent history. Despite that, we're not sure that most South Asians still truly understand the level of oppression and violence being waged on the Kashmiri people, the Kashmiri land, their histories, their ecology, basically on every aspect of Kashmiri existence. And most importantly, how India has been carrying out a settler colonial project since 1947, very much inspired from Israel, um, and what it really means to occupy and colonize another land. Um, in another part of the episode, we will hear from Kashmiri experts and scholars on the topic. But in this session, we wanted to talk through this past year of organizing for Kashmir at Sasi, some of our insights, lessons, and challenges from our work, and also share some of our own personal journeys, how each one of us came to our own decolonization when it comes to Kashmir and its relationship with India. So let's start with when we first realized um, that Kashmir was not an integral part of India. Yeah, I can I can go ahead first. So this is Azad, um, and so I am I am actually from Kashmir. I'm from Pakistan, occupied Kashmir, or what is otherwise called as Azad Kashmir, which I um, like to think is ironic. Um, and so my the question I actually probably answered for myself was realizing that Kashmir wasn't an integral part of Pakistan um, because I come from a family that has a long line of very separatist thought. And so, um, you know, it was kind of in the district of 
Gunch, which is where my family is from, that those original rebellions started to break out back in 1947. Um, and so there was a swath of districts that were uh, ceded eventually to Pakistan. And so in the, in the generation since, the separatist thought has really remained within my family and my family's history. And so um, we're very much like, oh, we're Kashmiri, like Kashmiri first, you know, we don't refer to ourselves um, as Pakistani and, you know, love the pan-Kashmiri thought. But I think I was in college the first time I spoke to a Pakistani international student who was really under the impression, because this was her education, that uh, everyone in Kashmir wanted to be a part of Pakistan and that mm. Pakistan and that Kashmir was meant to to be Pakistani. Um, mm. And and she claimed us, right, as a whole. And this mm. person is now one of my best friends. And, you know, she, <laughs> she like didn't know because this was in her textbooks. And so I think there's a lot to be said for how people are. Um, I mean, the propaganda is really s- steeped in in people's education on both sides in Pakistan and in India. Um, and everyone wants to claim ownership, realizing that Kashmir is an autonomous or should be an autonomous body of people with autonomous thought um, was something that I, I was hit with on on both sides, uh, really. Um, I, I, I feel like my even consciousness about the existence of Kashmir has been has gone through such a huge timeline. But I think the first moment that I realized that Kashmir uh, was not not only not an integral part of India, but was not a part of India, was never a part of India, was actually fairly recently. Um, I would say in the last like maybe five, six years. It was just while I had some fairly progressive thoughts around the occupation, I even talked about it in terms of the occupation. I even talked about it in terms of something wrong that India is doing there for uh, longer. The idea that um, Kashmir was never a part of India was brand new very recently in my life. And I remember the exact moment because it was kind of a shock. Uh, I was listening to a Kashmiri scholar speak and there was somebody who asked a question um, and they uh, presented the question as uh, saying, oh, the separatist movement in Kashmir. And the first thing that they said was, this is not a separatist movement. Kashmir has never been part of India. This is not, uh, we, we are not part of India and we were never been part of India. And when I heard that, it was such a moment of, oh, this is this is not like this is not because there is a lot of separatist movement within India, right? Um, uh, and we hear about it, it a lot. Right. I just kind mm-hmm. of categorized it around that kind of uh, framing for a long time, and I didn't even realize that I had categorized it. So, mm-hmm. in terms of uh, really thinking about Kashmir as not just occupied, I I know that that's those are not uh, separate terms, but actually has never had a history that is that is inclusive of like the Indian state or even like uh, w- you know what whatever that means or in Indian culture. Um, that was that was that moment, and I remember that moment very very precisely. Um, hey, this is Anjali. Um Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with that in a big way. Um, I definitely had that typical like Hindu kid in the diaspora understanding of Kashmir. Like we grew up uh, with this Kashmiri Pandit family um, that were our neighbors, and I remember like like uh, like hearing people in the in our family being like, "Oh, like it's so awful what happened to them. Like that they had mm. to, they were forced out of their home." 
uh, by these like uh, Pakistani terrorists is always the line that we would hear. Um, and, you know, it just, it reinforced these ideas of Islamophobia that, that we were, that I grew up hearing, like, oh, like, you know, Muslim terrorists, they're always making, like, threatening our security, um, mm-hmm. reason why we need to have the Indian army there. Um, and it's mm-hmm. really a focal point of the Islamophobia that we're fed growing up. Yeah. yeah. For me, like, growing up, I never really questioned it as a little, I, mean, I was a little yeah. kid, we were, when we when we um, were growing up with that family, and it wasn't until college when I started learning about Palestine actually, and like learning about what was happening in Palestine um, from my friends who were Muslim themselves. Um, it wasn't until then when I started to hear about Kashmir, and this was like 2014 before before the, those that solidarity had really been concretized in the way that we see now. Um, but people were starting to talk about like oh like. There's occupied, like Indian occupied Kashmir was a term that was being used. And I was like, oh, wow, like as a South Asian, I know more about Palestine than I do about like what what India is doing. Right? Like I know more about the underpinnings of Zionism than I do about Hindu fascism. And I grew up Hindu. And I remember hearing like um, these Jewish kids, like Jewish progressive kids saying like not in our name. And I started to think like, oh, wow, like Kashmir is happening in my name. Like where, where are the Hindus yeah. not in our name? Like you don't even, you wouldn't even see that in 2014, right? Um, right. Yeah. So, and then, you know, like I think also when you start um, learning about Palestine, you end up being introduced to a lot of poetry and you start reading like Mahmoud Darwish and through that you become introduced to like Iqbal Ahmed, um, Aga Shahid Ali, you start being mm-hmm. to like these like radical poets, Faiz Ahmed Faiz. Um, and it's, it's like really, it was, it's incredible to know that there has been solidarity for so long and that there's so many parallels to be found um, between these anti-occupation struggles. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely, I would say, learned more, um, like you, Nangeli, from other struggles than I did from, like, within South Asian circles, right? So, like, for for most Indians, um, like me, like, Kashmir has always been presented to us as an essential part of the country, um, you know, like, for most Indians, even when they look at an Indian map, they expect Kashmir to be part of it. It's just so ingrained mm-hmm. in us. Um, mm-hmm. Growing up, you know, I, I remember hearing a lot about just like riots or insurgencies that would break out in Kashmir. And just like, it, like it was just so routine and so normalized. But mm-hmm. yet there was this other simultaneous reality of like, oh, there's all this, like there's an enormous tourism um, industry that is promoted to mainland Indians. Um, you know, in addition to the beautiful sort of natural landscape, there were Hindu pr- pilgrimages. There was one specifically called Vashno Devi that every family I knew would go to, like, doesn't matter if they ever were like visited any other part of India or not, but they made, like, they made sure to go to this like 10 to 12 kilometer trek to, you know, visit this temple in Jammu and Kashmir. Um, so it was just, it was, you know, these two sort of contradictory images of Kashmir that were fed to us. And even in Bollywood, right, you would see either Kashmiri women being exoticized or, you know, the evil sort of Kashmiri militant who has to be taken yeah. down, who is, who is a threat to national <laughs> security. And like, that's, 
that that is deeply what shaped the dominant narrative and continues to and that's it's it's a colonizer's gaze when you really think about it and it was not until that I came to the diaspora that I really learned about learned from Kashmiri perspectives and I'm really grateful to the Kashmiri diaspora for you know continuing this work and, and educating us because the Indian government does such a good job at you know just invisibilizing any Kashmiris living in occupied territory controlling anything that comes out controlling the narrative and and -hmm. continuing to to vilify especially Kashmiri Muslims um yeah yeah so I think with that you know let's let's turn to sort of our work over the past sort of year let's talk about what it's been like for us as a South Asian you know collective in the diaspora organizing in support of Kashmir. Last year has obviously been a very intense year. A lot has gone down. Um, yeah, so let's, let's, let's talk about that. I just quickly, can I uh, actually uh, respond a little bit to what you were saying, Sheila? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I actually was curious if anyone had ever seen or heard of the movie Mission Kashmir. Yeah, I was, was just thinking about. Say. <laughs> Definitely. Yes. Yeah, analysis project of like like um, Bollywood films that talked about Kashmir and Mission Kashmir was at the top of the list. But even like Mehuna because I loved it yes. when I was a kid, and I remember yeah. my parents in the background frowning when we were yeah. watching Mehuna, and I'd be like, "Why are you guys so mad about it? Like, <laughs> it doesn't make sense." And I watch it as a grown person, and I'm horrified because it's all about yeah. this Kashmiri Muslim militant mm. and who crosses the border to get what training and this like obsession with Kashmir right this obsession with militancy that reflects in media in a way that I think has has really always been there I think as as far as like masala Bollywood films go I I can't remember a time before that was a a part of the Bollywood formula right right Uh, actually I do I mean I uh, like years later I've seen the movie I remember the movie but because the movie was so forgettable except for the music <laughs> the music was huge hit and we all Bumbra. sang that stupid song all the time right? <laughs> but and we danced to it but besides that I don't remember the plot but I looked it up because I was so curious what was Mission Kashmir and the plot is super bizarre can I give like a quick summary of the plot yeah do so, it. So, so from what I remember like the plot is like these Indian police people are like you know fighting terrorists in Kashmir and they blow up somebody's home and they blow up somebody's home and the the parents everyone dies and the only person who is um, alive is this child who the uh, who's Ritik Roshan who grows up to be Ritik yeah. Roshan but Sanjay Dutt who's the police officer feels so guilty about the violence that he's done he adopts <laughs> he adopts Ritik Roshan the child and no. raises him and when he hmm. finds out that he's not like uh, his son, he becomes enraged and he becomes like this very angry man. So this is like the story. And of course, he like falls in love and sings about bumblebees while all of this is <laughs> happening as well. So it's like, it's such a, it's such a, like a strange story. But also for me, like when I read the plot line, which is hard to remember when you watch it, because it's such a masala thing. But like mm-hmm. when I read it, it was such a typical kind of gaze on how the, 
like Indians in India are asked to think about Kashmiris, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. yeah, there are there is violence that happened, but it is necessary, and it is done by mm-hmm. good people with kind hearts, right? Mm-hmm. And this in whatever trauma happens to Kashmiri people, uh, it is being resolved by Indians. And uh, look, there is there is um, they, they are. Uh, inherently violent in some way and we have to do the whole yeah uh, winning the mm-hmm. hearts and minds thing we yep. have to keep mm-hmm. doing what the policeman is doing which is offer shelter and kindness and love yeah. and so saving them is, from themselves exactly saving them from themselves and all of this so it's like a, a like it's it's such a like a you know in one way it's such a laughable movie but in another mm-hmm. way like a really powerful uh, way in which something so violent has become part of our everyday and part of a normal way of seeing something um yeah yeah i mean i like it's this is a weird analogy but i kind of think about the occupation in terms of something like rape culture you know like rape culture like is mm. something that is so normalized like of yeah. course like i you know men will want more sex or like of course it is up to the women to not have sex or like all of these like really violent ideas are so normalized that we don't even think that there's actually something deeply wrong with it i kind of think about the occupation in that way like the logics of the occupation is so like part of our everyday those of us who grew up in india like it's such a it's such so woven into how we uh, how we experience um, that region of the world or how we are what we are told about the region of it, it never occurs to us to even question uh, any of its fundamental realities mm-hmm. right and it doesn't help that especially now there's a political climate where any sort of dissent any sort of challenging the state is just completely fatal right so like forget liberals like even like the left in india like has never said really anything about it and the sort of you know even when the liberal sort of talking heads talk about kashmir is very is very condescending like you said it yeah. you know it's all about we have we have to win their hearts and souls and we know we know what's best for them um you know it's not really coming from a place that is really sympathetic to the kashmiri plight it's really like what they're really worried about is like we don't want to look bad in front of you know the world we have you know we're living in a pluralistic democracy and so you know st- it's it's basically coming from that and and they'll paint this as you know a development issue a human rights issue but it's never really about the self-determination of Kashmiris it's never really a political um you know situation so and not to mention that most like prominent figures are just like apologists for the Indian army that's like another thing which is just so deeply problematic like you just cannot I mean, criticize the army at all. Yeah, so many of the like the prominent left activists like Kanya Kumar have openly said that you know openly talked about like a yeah. unified, uh, yep. unified like region uh, and yeah. absolutely talks about Kashmir. Like uh, Kashmiris are part of India and all of this and see and this is seen as something that is a unifying and peaceful thing to say, um, and yep. which is and not at all understood as actually deeply violent. As much as we know, like the Sanghi sort of talking points about the Hindu Rashtra and all that, like, I actually think the liberals have done more harm or just as much harm to the Kashmiri cause. And there's something like, 
uniquely, I feel like, violent about how liberals carry on about Kashmir. And mm-hmm. so, like, to me, like, that's, it's just so problematic and it's so important that we, like, unpack that a little bit more. Um, especially yeah. because, like, they're the ones who are, like, normalizing, um, you know, this continued um, oppression of Kashmir. And, like, to me, it's just, it, it pisses me off so much about how they continue to boast about, like, their democracy and, you know, like, without challenge, like, how can you consider yourself a democracy without actually giving people, like, rights to that democracy or even if even if even questioning whether somebody wants to be a part of that democracy right like that's where the logics that um, Maryam you were talking about come into play yeah I feel like within the Indian context at, at least in relation to Kashmir there's no difference between liberals and lefties Definitely for the most not. part like there are individual yeah. very particular exceptions that only prove the rule um, yeah. so yeah yeah, I think uh, the the entire, I'm oh, sorry if I could, um, the liberals' obsession with democracy, we see it so often when people describe India as, you know, the largest democracy in the world, right? And like, what yeah. does that mean under, I mean, beyond, beyond a Modi regime, right? Because this problem is not specific to Modi yep. or like that administration in any way. This is, you know, the Hindutva project that has been festering and growing and intentionally organizing for decades on decades. Um, so people will will see India as as the world's largest democracy, as the place that yeah. has like now decriminalized homosexuality, for example, right? Um, and that's one of those places yeah. where we see uh, like a homo nationalist agenda show up in Kashmir, where people are talking about, oh, like you know, if India absorbs Kashmir, or occupies Kashmir, it's only better for the Kashmiris yep. because we'll yeah. be bringing them rights for their gay people and rights for their women. Um, because those heathens can't do it themselves right we need to like again the the saving them from themselves thing uh shows up and you know homo nationalism is something that we have seen happen so explicitly in palestine right with the israeli Mm -hmm. occupiers um and this just like pattern of oh but like that's a democracy and the democracy is going to be the best thing for all these people and then you know really an international obsession with democracy as um the system of political organization that people want and i think that's also the reason why so many indian liberals uh you know are quick to or are maybe not quick but quicker to recognize um occupations or just like militarized regimes happening elsewhere whether that's palestine or puerto rico or in the philippines but we'll we'll really not be able to make the connection between what's happening in India and what's happening in Kashmir. And then, you know, for, as for like Pakistanis who maybe are a little, I, well, actually, I won't, I won't say that they're less concerned with democracy, but Pakistani liberals, for example, like to chant things like Kashmir, Pakistan, Banega, right? Like Kashmir will become Pakistan because it's always about who gets ownership over this place as opposed to to recognizing the autonomy of the region, recognizing the autonomy of Kashmiri people. Mm. And yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really curious about what turns the liberal sentiment, what pushes it to the left, you know, what pushes it into a recognition of occupation. These dynamics then also kind of play into the organizing space and, you know, even the dynamic with other South Asian organizing, you know, just take our example of being a South Asian diaspora collective that is pretty vocal about Kashmir and centers Kashmir, tries to center Kashmir in 
you know, sort of every, every point we make. And it's, it's very isolating. It's like, it's not only do we get lots of hate, obviously from Sanghis, but there's not that much, you know, solidarity or support from other organizations because they just don't want anything to do with, with this issue. And that's, that's also, and all, a lot of these organizations claim to be very progressive and are and, and legitimized as such. Since then, Kashmir became such a diasporic force, uh, we'll actually even use the long language of occupation, right? We'll actually say occupation yes, too. Yes, yes. Which Definitely. is odd for me. But then we'll not do anything material, including yeah. in terms of, you know, showing up for a rally, holding a free Kashmir sign, even something that I think is pretty minimal yeah. and nothing. Yeah. Um, it, the, that will not happen. Um, and their priorities are clearly about the upholding of Indian democracy, Indian constitution, Indian secularism, um, and all of these values that are deemed as as you know, pristine, always pristine. Um, yeah, I think Mariam touched on a, a good point there, which is the difference between, you know, these liberals really, really tout secularism and Indian secularism, and they want to, you know, like chant like Hindu, Muslim, bye bye, down to it, like, and it's, you see this in Palestine organizing as well, like, what really, what really these liberals need to do in order to interrogate these politics are to deconstruct their own Islamophobia, right? Like, I think there's this deep sense of Islamophobia that's underpinning all of this, these, this idea of like, of like this Indian, Indian secularism. And that is, I think when, when these Hindus can interrogate that, that's when they will become a little more um, acknowledging of, of Kashmiri, of what Azadi really means. Um, I think that's really what needs to happen. Um, a questioning of, of the Islamophobia that like fuels their idea of like, oh, like, you know, a free, a free Kashmir is impossible. Like Muslims will not be able to govern themselves. Like they, they still hold these ideas. Um, and I think yeah. that's the most dangerous aspect to this. I mean, I feel like uh, the Hindu Muslim bhai bhai trope is one of the most obnoxious things to come out of South Asian liberal spaces. I see all kinds of people engage yeah. in this and it is it irritates me every time. And it's so difficult to explain why it irritates me, uh, because, you know, why wouldn't we want more um, why wouldn't we want more unity and all of that? Um, yeah. You know, but, but at the end of the day, it is, it is not, uh, it, it pretends to have an equal footing. It's the same thing as calling genocides, riots, or a communal fighting, right? right. It dumbs down people's, um, like the structural violence against Muslims, against Dalits, mm -hmm. not just Muslims, Dalits, Bahujans, Christians in India. Um, and and it also like flattens everything where it is always like Pakistan versus India and oh, yeah. Muslim yeah. versus Hindu yeah. in this really really reductive reduct ridiculous way where one like I feel like a lot of times Indian liberals are only concerned about Kashmir in relation to how they see Pakistan. They might know mm. nothing about Pakistan, but then they will just mirror it in a way that I think that just makes for like easy argument making without having any knowledge or information or even curiosity about Pakistan. Right. And so it's this liberal way of like just saying, oh, it's the same over there, but switched. Yeah, but like you have not 
bother to learn anything or understand how actually it's a whole different thing and it's actually very complicated right and you are actually ignoring everything around uh, like kashmir or having giving any voice to kashmiri people so there is this like easy lazy thing that i think a lot of indian liberals do and claim that to be like a neutral position or an equalizing position something that i find that i that is very difficult to kind of challenge because it's actually very complicated yeah and that's why sometimes or actually most of the times we found that it's been easier to work and build solidarities transnationally and not yeah. within south asia right because there's mm-hmm. just not this nothing is at stake to preserve for them like there's no concern about preserving this like indian statehood um and and so we've been able to work um in solidarity with other movements fighting for freedom whether that's you know palestinian activists or filipino activists fighting the duterte yeah. regime and that's where a lot of our learning has come from to be honest yeah yeah absolutely um, i think i something that i hope to see and something that we as asi talk about so often is just um trying to you know create space within our movement for people to make the the wow this is this is a very confusing way to say it sorry mm-hmm. um uh, i don't know i'm just curious in in seeing more people make the connection between the hindutva project and the occupation of kashmir it sounds mm-hmm. like a simple leap and happen in practice is that it's not really or it's seen as uh risky or compromising um maybe the assimilationist agenda of some liberal or progressive mm. groups right we are we are just like every other indian right yeah. um mm. except us as one of yours right but what happens right. if i think kashmir really throws a wrench in that agenda right because yeah. if you're a kashmiri separatist for example we're not it's like i'm not i'm not part of you and i i want to yeah. be seen as my own potentially my own nation state but at the very least my own group that we could then move towards some consensus on what we want to do next right so it's inherently yeah. that that's the the problem of kashmir i think in these spaces is so often that it it interrupts the framework for how people are thinking about their liberation and how can you have south asian liberation without the liberation of kashmir to me it doesn't make any sense how how do you leave yeah. that big chunk out yeah Yeah, I mean I, it's so important that more South Asians start to speak out about this. Um sorry Maryam, I think I could was cutting you off. Go ahead. No, I was just going to like refer back to the earlier question that you had asked about mm. South Asian diasporic uh like organizing yeah. in yeah. connection to Azad's question. Um I think that's so critical for me. I think that the political fluency around talking about Kashmir as like deeply connected to anti hindutva um has has been a has been a learning experience i still don't feel like yeah. i have the political fluency to really do that uh, but i'm learning you know and i feel like um you know that, that i feel like as a diaspora we are also moving in the right direction uh even though there are lots of flaws and um, um yeah. misgivings uh, i think some something has so dramatically shifted in the past year um that it feels almost as if we have to talk about a pre august 2019 era and a yeah. post august 2019 era and of course now with coronavirus all of yeah. those things like so sort of so, so fundamentally change how we think about kashmir yeah um and 
Yeah. And I mean, one thing is, is, is clear that as South Asians in the diaspora, it is really like our obligation, like we have an obligation to speak out about India's occupation in Kashmir and amplify Kashmiri voices because it's just, there's not a lot of room to do it if you are in, in, you know, in the subcontinent at all, especially at a yeah. time when the Indian state is criminalizing dissent at such an alarming rate, um, imprisoning you know, uh, political activists in Kashmir. There's so many political prisoners now. People have just been disappeared. They've been tortured. And the government is now accelerating demographic change now, policies in yeah. Kashmir. You know, there's just so much happening. And, and you know, we, we like, it's going to have to be South Asians who, who talk about this. Kashmiris have been, have been talking about this forever, but it really is, it comes down to, especially if you, you're Indian or upper caste Indian, it's really up to you. So, you know, there's obviously so much to, more to say about this conversation, but we, we hope these sort of initial thoughts help, you know, our listeners think a little bit more critically um, about all that's happening um, in, in the I, subcontinent and question really this occupation and they start to think about it in terms of an occupation. Yeah. I did want to say one big thing that I feel like we have missed. Um, I feel like one of the things that was a constant challenge in terms of organizing was the Kashmiri Pandit question, right? And what, um, what the, the history of the Kashmiri Pandits. I feel like at every turn, I feel like yeah. one of the first times that I really, um, first, one of the first signals that I had to pay attention to what happened with Kashmir was from Hindu right movements. Because the Hindu right has been very, very organized on Kashmir from as long mm -hmm. as I have been aware of them. You know, I remember going to a meeting mm -hmm. in D.C., so many years ago and there was you know Hindu American Foundation there and we weren't even talking about Kashmir there was nothing about it, it uh, around Kashmir but they had pamphlets they had nice pamphlets mm. they had all kinds of information about genocide they were handing it out to people at that meeting um, and I was like oh what is this and obviously everything they do is wrong <laughs> <So> <laughs> So then that was my clue, like, you know, that there was something, uh, something to think about here. Yeah. Um, so, but how, how do folks kind of feel about, you know, like, how to handle the question of Kashmiri Pandits, like what, like the genus, you know, how, how it is framed? Is that a challenge that you face? It definitely yeah, was, I, and it's still okay. hard to grapple with that question, you know, a little bit. And like, especially as a non-Kashmiri, I still am learning how to do that. But I think what's really helped me is like every movement for self-determination for Kashmir has been inclusive of pundits. In fact, it's been, you know, nobody's trying to make a, a, a Kashmiri state just for Muslims or just for a particular group. It's really like a multi-religious, like pluralistic Kashmir um, yeah. that very much is inviting of pundits to return um, so that's really helped me think about this yeah and, and I think like one thing to bring up like and I'm never like whenever um, any like Hindu right-wing nutcase brings up the, the mm -hmm. pundit situation um, I always ask like so, so what has the Indian government actually done for pundits and they've never been able to give a satisfactory answer because the Indian government has done nothing to help pundits like they've right. Mm -hmm. They've literally, like, they've turned their back on them. And so I think that's an important message to drive home. And then also what uh, what Sheila was saying is that, you know, 
like Kashmiris are not asking for a Muslim nation. Like they're not, this isn't another like ethno-nationalist project. This is uh, th- like, they're very much have always been very straightforward in saying that they just want to free Kashmir for all Kashmiris. Um, and I think that's like a very important thing to continue to bring up. I think it, I, I don't know, every time this has happened to me so often, you know, I'll introduce myself as Kashmiri and people be like, oh yeah, what about the pundits? As if it's a gotcha, right? Like yeah. as if it's a, <laughs> yeah. yeah, like what are you going to say now, you know? Which is, it, it really, it makes me really sad because how terrible to weaponize people's real pain and suffering. Yeah. Because yeah. I don't, I don't know a single Kashmiri who has denied that Kashmiri pundits like were treated in a very particular way and made to flee in large numbers because of and that this is like the thing that you have to keep in mind right like what is what was the because what changed a pluralistic society in which multiple ethnicities or ethnic groups rather and religious groups live together for centuries and centuries and centuries right this is a Kashmir is like an ancient ass place (laughs) and you know what happened what shifted the tide so that this happened right it's always going to be the forces of occupation and imperialism that create these wedges between communities that is intentionally it's ma- it's made to destroy it right it's made to destroy the very fabric of a community so that they cannot you know build power among themselves so i think that's like a really important thing to interrogate and i i hope for you know a kashmir that is free in which kashmiris you know all kashmiris have what i would consider the right of return and you know, can can continue to build the pluralistic society that has always existed in Kashmir without people mm-hmm. like slinging around people's identities as if it's, you know, just that, that like question that's meant to devise, like to detract from your argument as if this mm-hmm. is going to say, oh yeah, actually I don't believe in liberation anymore at all for this yeah. massive area and this massive group of people. And, you know, I just have to say that like within, within India, the, the, the plight of the Kashmiri pundits is, 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 is like mythologized to such an intense degree. Like people, like I've heard people say that millions of people were massacred. Like, you know, there's yeah. been such an There's intense, a lot of revisionism happening there. Int- <laughs> like it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's really in- insane. And of course that history is very complicated and confusing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't, I, I don't claim to know much about it except reading a few articles, but like, but, but it's clearly like a, uh, like a, like an insane up, upgrade of what actually happened mm. in, that, in that time period also like millions of people were not massacred clearly like like no so yeah I actually have a good resource that I think um I think I got from Stand with Kashmir a pretty succinct fact sheet about yeah. the Kashmiri Pandit uh, question and it's at um I can I can plug the link here and then I can also send it um, to be, yeah, you know, put like, up awesome. with the podcast. Yeah, um, absolutely. Said that to so many people <laughs> like that. Yeah, the Kashmir scholars file. Yeah, yeah it's it's yeah, really yeah. you know like it has its little citations and things like that. And I just think it's a good starting point for folks who want to kind of uh, learn more about how to address what is called you know the Bundith question. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, and Stand with Kashmir also has so many other great resources. So we really strongly mm-hmm. encourage listeners to follow their work. Um, you know, especially if you're trying to learn more about the Indian occupation and also how if you want to get involved and what you can do to raise more awareness. 
Um, they actually recently launched also another uh, a podcast. It's called the Kashmir Podcast in collaboration with Ifat Ghazia. Um, and you know the, that it tells stories of of resistance from from Kashmir. So that's also like we rarely get to hear like humanized sort of narratives about Kashmir. Mm-hmm. It's whether it's just like oh look at all this violence and look at all yeah. you know this suffering, but there's a lot of resilience and power. Uh, and it's 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 really you know important to hear those stories as well. So please please do that. Um, I think we're almost out of time, so cool. we're gonna wrap this episode up. Thanks everyone for sharing all your thoughts. Um, we hope that this this conversation was helpful. Um, again, if you're a South Asian person, especially Indian, we hope you will also continue to learn more about um, the occupation in Kashmir and speak up about it. Um, and yeah, and this is a conversation that, you know, has, will continue. Um, this is just, we were literally just scratching the surface. Um, yeah. So that's all. Thank cool. you for listening, everyone. Uh, and we'll see you soon.